The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, uh, here we go. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's open them up to Matthew chapter three, okay? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter three. Uh, That's where we're gonna start today, but we're gonna be all over the book of Matthew. So uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, okay, that's all right. You can open a phone or a tablet. There are also hardback black Bibles under every single chair, and you can use one of those. Matthew chapter three is on page 808. Uh, If you, maybe if you don't have a Bible, or the only Bible you have is one that you know, like your Grammy gave you and it's in old English, these before thys and thous and all that. Like, take this one, okay? Let this one be a gift to you. If you're online with us, we also wanna welcome you. Click that little Bible tab. Matthew 3 is where we're gonna be this morning. Um, and I wanna start with this. The text that we're in today is an interesting one, okay? Uh, it's, it's really not a fun text, All right, Uh, we are at a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 14 is where we're gonna get to. We're gonna start in Matthew three, but Matthew 14 is kind of a turning point where Jesus is moving from being very popular, from attracting huge crowds, from doing incredible miracles to now moving into a season in his ministry where he is becoming very unpopular and he's still doing incredible miracles, but people are beginning to reject him on a whole scale. And this will ultimately lead to what we saw a couple weeks ago when we celebrated Holy Week. He will enter into Jerusalem only to be betrayed, to be crucified and die. And so last week's passage and this week's passage are what are known as rejection narratives. These are rejection narratives. Last week, one of our elders, Eric Shelley, uh, brought us the story of Jesus being rejected in his hometown. He goes to Nazareth and he's rejected, which just real quick, by the way, I think Eric did a terrific job last week. Uh, So if you know Eric, encourage him, but it is so good of God to give us other guys at Fathom who can bring God's word faithfully to us. I'm just thankful for, for him for those guys. So I just wanted to let you know that uh, Eric did a great job. But last week, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, okay? And this week uh, is a strange little story about a beheading, okay? So spoiler alert, somebody loses their head uh, this week in the story. So I'm titling this sermon, Off With His Head, okay? That's uh, the title. Uh, And I just want to start today with something of a disclaimer. Uh, If If you're looking for the feel-good sermon of the year, this one is not it. Sorry, CCU students, for your last Sunday with us. Um, It's not so good. Our text will feature a beheading, but there's also incest and adultery in this text. Yeah, so it's not that great, okay? It's more like a a, a program on HBO than something from our Bible, all right? And in order that today's passage isn't just a complete downer for you, I'm going to try to pad some of the more upsetting parts in this story with a little bit of a palate cleanser, okay? Um, So I heard a guy do this, another pastor do this, and I thought I'd give it a try today. But think of, uh, I'm going to give us some palate cleansers. Think of these like bumpers on a bowling alley lane that keep the ball from just hitting the the gutter, okay? So we're gonna have these moments. Let me give you an example, okay? Here's an example. I'll say something like this. The Bible actually has some truly horrific instances in it. Like beheadings aren't an unusual thing, okay? Uh, The most famous beheading in the the Old Testament is uh, David and Goliath, 
right? You know this story? We've, we, I'm sure, sure you have. We tell our children this at bedtime, which is very inappropriate, all right? Uh, killing somebody and then cutting their head off. But the story goes that the young boy, David, kills Goliath. Then he goes up to the corpse, pulls out the giant's sword, saws off his head, and then carries the head around for a while. I don't know what happens to a head after it's been around for a while, but you got, can imagine this is a problem. It's a horrific story. Here's a picture of a dog dressed up like a unicorn. <laughs> See? It's not so bad, right? All right, so, so we're going to be fine today. We're going to be fine today. Let's get after it. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to go do a little recap of, uh, of John the Baptist's life. Uh, so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Follow along in your text. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this is John the Baptist we're talking about today. He is a very important figure in the New Testament, uh, and he is actually a parallel in, in many of these passages to Jesus. Okay, so like Jesus... John the Baptist is prophesied about in the Old Testament. That's what we just read about from Isaiah. He is prophesied before he is born. And like Jesus, his birth is foretold by angels. We learned about that at Christmas, right? Like the the, the great significance of John's life is made known to his parents before he was born. And then like Jesus, even his birth is miraculous, because John the Baptist's parents were old and barren. They were unable to have children and they were past childbearing age. And, and, and so John is a really important character and his role is crystal clear in the text. He was what's called the forerunner to the Messiah, the forerunner to the Messiah. And his job, as what we just read, is to prepare the way for the Lord. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. His job is to herald the coming of the kingdom and the king. A kingdom is coming. The king is coming. And he did it. He did his job. John did his job. Now, skip down to verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay. John sees Jesus show up. He's doing his ministry at the Jordan, says that Jesus comes from Galilee uh, and he sees Jesus and he recognizes this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one whom I've been telling you about. This is who I've been preparing the way for. Actually, in another gospel, upon seeing Jesus approach, he says these famous words, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So, So John the Baptist knows that Jesus, who is his cousin, by the way, he knows that Jesus 
is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the prophesied one. So he knows that Jesus, he identifies that Jesus is the Messiah far before anybody else does. And then turn the page. I mean, literally turn the page to chapter four or don't if it's on the same page. But, um, but Matthew chapter four, here's what we hear about John next. Look at verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So John gets arrested. And in chapter four, we don't know why. It's not too long after Jesus shows up on the scene and people start following Jesus and he's kind of fulfilled his job as the forerunner, as preparing the way. Now Jesus is here, people start leaving John and we find out that John is arrested. And as is the pattern for many of the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, even John the Baptist, who who correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, gets confused. He's gonna get confused when things don't go the way that he expected them to go. So I want you to turn to the right to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Now I preached a sermon on Matthew chapter 11 last year um, because we, we don't hear from John from Matthew chapter four until Matthew chapter 11. But this is where he shows back up in the story. And we're gonna see him get confused here. Look at verse two, Matthew eleven two. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So this is John's moment of confusion and doubt. Okay, he's still in prison. And in questioning Jesus, he says, are you the one who is to come or, or should we look for another? Essentially, like, like, remember, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And he's like, are you the one? Are you, are you sure you're the one? I think the undertext of that question is John saying, how did I get here? If you're the one, how did I end up in prison? Because John had faithfully followed Jesus. He'd faithfully done his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. But now Jesus hasn't lived up to what he thought the Messiah would be. Right? Jesus hasn't overthrown the oppressors. Okay? Jesus doesn't seem to be in any way preparing a revolution at this point. Rome continues to rule. Israel continues to be oppressed and to suffer. Where was the king that he had prophesied about? Where was the kingdom that John had been calling people to? And now John's in prison and his faith is wavered. And here's where I wanna make my first point. This is the point that I made last year. If you follow Jesus, you might not end up where you thought. If you faithfully follow Jesus, your life may not go in the direction that you think it should. You might not end up where you thought. See, listen, Jesus will often confound 
and confuse and sometimes even disturb even those who believe in him. See, if I'm writing the story of John the Baptist, if I'm the author of, if this is Chris's gospel, okay? If I'm the one who's writing it and I see John's life as the forerunner and, and, and I see his humility to step aside when Jesus shows up on the scene. There's another point that we didn't read where John's disciples come to him and they're like, bro, all, these, all of our followers are going after Jesus. I, I added the bro part in, okay? Um, they're just going to follow Jesus. What should we do? And John says the most beautiful thing. He says, he must increase. I must decrease. I mean, what a, what a statement of faith. He had, if he had that humility when Jesus came onto the scene and took away his crowds, my mind says, John, well done, buddy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the good life, right? Like John should, should get the cushy retirement now. If I'm, if I'm writing the story, this one, like he should, he should meet a beautiful Israelite honey at this point, right? <laughs> I mean, for reals, they should get married and they should have lots of really attractive children, right? Like that's what I'm thinking. They should have a nice house, maybe a couple of camels, right? A couple of camels. Uh, maybe he sets up a little shop and he sells organic locusts and honey bars. <laughs> but just make good on that hippy dippy crowd. I'm sure people would be buying that junk, right? Maybe he starts a line of camel hair clothing. It's the hottest trend of the season. Like I just, I think you should give this guy something, but that's not how his story ends. While the very man who he prepared the way for starts ministering to the crowds who had once followed him, John ends up rotting in prison. Here's a picture of some cute and fluffy clap cows. I actually think they blow dry them. Uh, yeah, yeah, some people know this. Yes, you actually do this, okay? Listen, right here, right here, right here. Don't look at the cows, look at me. If you follow Jesus, you might not end up where you thought you would. And we haven't even gotten to our text yet, okay? That's the last we've heard about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. So I want you to turn right one more time, one last time to Matthew chapter 14, because now John's story comes to a conclusion. Matthew chapter 14, as you're turning there, this is a fun fact, okay, a little Bible trivia. This is the only story in the entire gospel of Matthew where Jesus is not present, okay? Write that one down for fun. Uh, I don't know what that means. I just thought it was really interesting. Matthew chapter 14, we're gonna start in verses one and two. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. If you're reading this for the first time, this is like a sucker punch to the gut right here, okay? Because right off the bat, without any explanation, the last we've heard, he's in prison and he's sending his guys to question Jesus. And now off the bat in 14, Matthew just brings up the fact that John the Baptist is dead. He is dead. 
So it's like, what the heck does that mean? Like, what the heck happened to this guy? The text goes on, verse three. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. All right. This is a flashback moment. Uh, This is all the way back to Matthew chapter four, where we find out that John has been arrested. Well, now we found out why here in Matthew chapter 14. So, So this guy, Herod the Tetrarch is mentioned. Let's do a little bit of work on this guy, okay? Herod the Tetrarch is also known as Herod Antipas, who was a part of the trial of Jesus, okay? Uh, there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament, so we have to, you have to understand where, where this family is, okay? Herod the Tetrarch is the son of Herod the Great, and you might remember Herod the Great as being a real gem, okay? He, uh, if you remember the Christmas story, that's the Herod who is Herod the Great. He's the one who, after the wise men didn't return after finding uh, baby Jesus, they don't return to report to him. Uh, he finds that out and he has uh, an order made to have all of the baby boys in Bethlehem to and under slaughtered. They call it the massacre of the innocents. Okay, so that's Herod the Great. On top of that, Herod the Great, we know from history, had his brother-in-law and mother-in-law executed. And some of you are like, well, you know, you haven't met my mother-in-law, so, <laughs> right? Like, um, but then, but then he also had his second wife executed and up to three of his children killed. So this is a dysfunctional family, okay? There's not enough counseling in the world for the Herods. But this, who we're reading about today, is Herod the Tetrarch, okay? This is Herod the Great's son. Now, Herod the Great was king of this region, but after his death, the region was split up to be ruled by some of his sons, the sons that survived infancy and their dad, apparently. Um, and after, uh, after they are given these areas, they're called tetrarchs. That they're, they're like governors of this area. And there were promises we have record of from Augustus Caesar that one of the sons would be made king if they ruled well, but none of them ever did, Okay. So John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he critiques Herod the Tetrarch because Herod had actually had an affair with and then married his brother Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias, uh, which is a direct violation of the Torah in Leviticus, which reads, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to have sexual relations. I am Yahweh, which seems simple enough right? Um, But what happened is Herod had divorced his first wife, had an affair with his sister-in-law, then she divorced Philip and he married her. And this was such a big deal that the father of Herod's first wife went to war against Herod, defeated him, but then Herod was saved when the Romans intervened. So everybody knew what was going on in the Herod story right here. Like this is, this is in the ancient Israelite tabloids. Everyone knew what was going on. And John starts publicly calling Herod out on this. This is John's MO. He calls Israel to repentance. This is what he does. 
But in calling him out from John the Baptist, this is not good for Herod the Tetrarch who wants to become Herod the king because he needs to have good relationships with the Jews in that area in order to be made king. So he has John put in prison to silence him. That's what we found out happened back in chapter four. Now let's go on in our story. Verse five, Matthew 14, verse five. And though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because he wanted to be king because they held John to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. All right. Birthdays in the ancient Roman world were pagan celebrations. They were not celebrated by God's people the same way that we might do a birthday party. So if you were raised in a conservative Christian home with no birthdays, you fit right in here, okay? But, um, but birthdays were pagan celebrations at that time. And how they would do this is men would often hold a banquet where the men and the women would be in separate rooms. The men would uh, eat and drink to the point of drunkenness. And they would often hire a prostitute who would perform erotic dances or worse to entertain the men. So it's like, I mean, picture just a, a, it's like a crazy bachelor party. That's kind of the image here. But this story is particularly twisted because the one doing the erotic dance is actually Herod's stepdaughter, who is also his niece. And scholars think she was likely 12, maybe 13 years old. And the text says that she pleased Herod. So this is not good. Very icky, right? Here's a chipmunk drinking from a teacup. <laughs> I don't know why there's a blueberry on a plate, but I think it's pretty nice, okay? <laughs> now listen, the story actually gets worse. Verse six again, middle of verse six. So Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod, verse seven, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So think of the story. There's a 12-year-old stepdaughter slash niece who performs a striptease and then is offered by her drunk stepfather slash uncle anything up to half of his kingdom is what another gospel says. She doesn't know what to ask for, right? Because she's 12. So she goes to her mother, Herodias, who has been publicly humiliated by John the Baptist and she asks for his head. Off with his head. But remember, Herod wants John alive. Not because he has any sort of affection for John, but because he wants the favor of the Jewish people so that he can become king. So what to do, what to do if you're Herod? Verse nine. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter 
and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. So this is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus Christ, prophesied about in the Old Testament, the miracle child, the one who baptizes Jesus, the one who prepared the way, the forerunner. And you can imagine the story. He, he's probably in the dungeons. He can maybe hear the noises of a party filled with drunkenness and debauchery. And Herod is there and the mistress is there and the scantily clad 12, 13-year-old girl is there. And there's no earthquake that would miraculously open up the prison doors like it would with the Apostle Paul. And there's no angel who shows up to walk John out of prison like would happen with the Apostle Peter. No, into the dungeon comes the executioner. And John's head is pushed down onto a chopping block. And the executioner pulls out his sword and he cuts off the head of John the Baptist. He puts the head on a plate. He brings it to the 12-year-old girl, all to the cheers of the drunken partygoers. And thus ends the life of what Jesus said, who Jesus said was the greatest among those born of women. So just one more time, just to make you feel better, here's a picture of my daughter as a newborn. It's here I want to make my second point. Take your eyes off the screen. <laughs> if you follow Jesus, you will be rejected. The first point was, if you follow Jesus, you might not end up where you thought, but I'm going to ratchet this up. If you faithfully follow Jesus, you will be rejected. Scholars point out about this passage that John's death is foreshadowing the death of Jesus, okay? But they also point out that this is a theological framework for what all of God's people can expect if they faithfully follow Christ. See, Jesus doesn't get John out of prison. Instead, John dies there because of a drunken and incestuous lap dance, and his disciples have to come and cart away and bury his decapitated body. This is a disgraceful story. It's horrific. And the question is, why would Matthew include this right in the middle of his gospel? 14 chapters in, 28 chapters in the book. Why not talk about this back in chapter four or just mention that he's dead and gone? Is it just because they want to put a nice bow on John's story so you don't have to ask for all of eternity what happened to John? I don't think so. Most scholars don't think so either. Every point that Matthew makes has a point. And the point is this. Passive pushback to Jesus is now becoming hostile rejection. Remember, these are the two rejection narratives that kind of hinge this book. And where there was some passive pushback, it's now upping the ante into some hostile rejection. 
of this Christ. And if this is what happens to the one who prepares the way for the long-awaited Messiah, then what's going to happen to the Messiah himself? And furthermore, what will happen to those who claim allegiance to this Messiah? You will be rejected. Now, this message doesn't settle with us right. I don't think many of us like this kind of talk, and I think it's because we've been anesthetized to this reality. I think we're numb to this reality mostly because we've been born into Western American culture. Though I do think Christians are starting to see more and more push back against them. And and listen, it's unlikely that you will be imprisoned for or even killed for your faith, your allegiance to Jesus. But hear me, the kingdom message of Jesus of Nazareth is as at odds with the ways of our world as it has ever been. Okay, there is still a price to pay for following Jesus in our cultural moment. I love to give these examples from both the left and the right from our political side of things, but let me just give you some examples, okay? A Christian commitment to racial equality is seen by some as liberal wokeness rather than a biblical reality of the kingdom where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. A a Christian commitment to being pro-life from conception to the grave is now considered by many an affront to the rights of women and their civil rights. A Christian commitment to caring for the poor and the marginalized is seen by some as Marxist or communist. And a Christian commitment to a biblical sexual ethic. What the Bible says about sex which most used to just consider old school and prudish, is now considered a barrier to progress or even hateful. And maybe obviously the most apparent of all is the exclusivity of Jesus being the only way and the only truth and the only light. There, no one comes to the Father except through him. That's an affront to modern sensibilities. Listen, that could get you killed. I just want you to hear me. Being a faithful follower of Jesus is not a means to popularity and status. You will eventually be rejected if you are a faithful follower of Christ. Maybe by family, maybe by friends, maybe in your politics, maybe in your job, but but the way of Christ does not jive with the way of this world. So these are the two points that I kind of see in the text. If you follow Jesus, you might not end up where you thought. And if you follow Jesus, you will be rejected. But then I wanted to add one last point. And this one's, I don't know it's in the text. This one's more mine. So I just put it there. It may not be worth as much to you at that point. But, but let me make my third point. If you follow Jesus, you will be tempted to soften the blow. 
This is why I put those cutesy pictures up on the screen. You see, just like those cute pictures, this, there's this temptation for us as Christians in the light of really disturbing and really difficult and really even confusing parts of following Christ. Like there's this temptation to become, uh, to superficially sprinkle a little sugar on top to make it more palatable. There's this temptation to just soften the blow a little bit. But I want to caution us against this, okay? Trite Christian answers are not going to help us. Mundane platitudes up against the horrors of the reality of life on this planet aren't going to help us. Niceties are not where our hope is found as Christ followers. Throw those bumper stickers in the trash, please. They're not gonna help us. See, the question to ask of this story, I think, the ultimate question is this. Who is the tragic figure in this story? Is it John the Baptist? Because he died too early because he didn't get what he actually deserved because he was faithful and and he never got to live out his full life and and get that whole story that I told you? Is he the tragic figure? Or is it Herod and Herodias and a 12-year-old girl and the drunken hordes at this party? See, I'm telling you, church, our temptation to think of John as the one who gets the short end of the stick on this story is so telling of our actual view of life and death. Uh, One commentator said these words, those who murdered John are far more pitiable than John is himself. In this instance, to be dead is more blessed than to be alive for the one murdered truly lives while those who murdered him are in reality the dead. So I'm gonna do something that they teach you not to do in preaching school, seminary. Um, They teach you not to use big theological words with your church because they might not understand them. But I think you're smart enough for this, okay? So I'm gonna break some rules and I'm gonna tell you the nice big theological term for what this is. Uh, it is called an overrealized eschatology. An overrealized eschatology. I'll explain that. Eschatology is the study of final or ultimate things. The eschaton is the end the study of the end. So it's a study of what happens at the end of all things. It's philosophical, it's theological. So an overrealized eschatology is when somebody expects that the end hope of Christianity is already here and now. You have overrealized that the end is right now, that, that this is where our hope is found. That, that in the here and now, this world is where ultimately our hope is. And, and I just wonder how many of us functionally live life like this is all there really is. We functionally have an overrealized eschatology that this is it. I better get mine. I better live my life to the full because when I die, well, that's it. 
but I just need you to hear. If that's the case, if this is all that there really is, then the death of John is the tragedy in the story. Then he missed it. Then it's over for him. But a faithful biblical witness would say, no, it's not. This world is not the end. The Christian hope, hear me, is not in this life. Our ultimate hope is in the life to come. Now, uh, we can overcorrect and form an underrealized eschatology, okay? The opposite of an overrealized is an underrealized, and that's when we just don't appreciate our lives on this earth. Right? And everything in this life is just kind of relegated as unimportant. And that's just as problematic, okay? Paul will say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I get to live, I get to do ministry, I get to move forward the kingdom with God's help, and I want to be a part of that. But if I die, I get to be with Jesus. That's better. He has a realized eschatology, neither over nor under. But I just want you to know, we don't need to soften the blow on this stuff. Even when life doesn't go the way we thought it would. Even when we are rejected because of our faith. The Christian's ultimate hope is not in this life. So I'm going to use an illustration I've used before. I haven't used it for a few years. Um, but this is how I like to illustrate this stuff. Um, I have a thing for binge watching intense crime action shows. Okay? Just little fun fact for me, okay? Uh, and and uh, there are some good ones, like 24. No? My parents love that? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> College students. <laughs> Have a great summer. Oh, that was you. Oh, okay. Yeah, Lauren. Okay, okay. There are good ones like 24, and then there are some not-so-good ones like every other one, okay? Um... And one of the not-so-good ones that I watched a number of years ago was a show called Blind Spot. Anybody watch this thing? It was not good, okay? Right? Pretty bad. Here's the premise of Blind Spot. Uh, a mysterious tattooed woman is found by the FBI with no recollection of who she is or how she got that way, but they discover that her tattoos all over her body contain clues to crawl, crimes they want to solve, and then they just kill a bunch of people. That's the show, okay? That's pretty much it, right? If you've seen it, you know how it is. Actually, it's every action show. That's pretty much it. But the main FBI agent in this show is a guy named Kurt Weller, okay? Strong name. If you're writing a sitcom or a show, whatever, one, one syllable, two syllable. That's how you know it. One syllable, two syllable. Jack Bauer, Kurt Weller, Chris Martin. That's how it works, okay? <laughs> Strong. So I'm watching The Blind Side on, uh, on Netflix, season two. I'm binge watching season two because season three was playing live on cable and I didn't have cable. Uh, and so I'm watching the finale, the, the series or season finale of season two. And here's what's going on. Okay, a terrorist gets some nuclear material and is looking to destroy the entire eastern seaboard. Perfect, okay? The only way to stop this from happening is to take out a beacon that's controlling the nuke, and the beacon is on a plane that's headed straight for the White House, so the FBI is trying to take that plane down, okay? Anybody writing this down? If you want to write scripts, this is good stuff. This is good material, okay? 
So Kurt Weller is like, all right, this is how he says it. He says this, how much time do you need to take down the plane? You gotta have that like low raspy voice, okay? How much time do you need? And the FBI guy is like, I need 15 minutes. And Weller's like, we don't have 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, we'll all be dead. I'm going in on my own. Okay, and so, and so Kurt goes in on his own and he starts fighting the terrorist in hand-to-hand combat, but we come to find out that the main beacon isn't actually on the plane, but it's inside the body of the terrorist. And if Weller kills her, the bomb's gonna go off. Okay, is, it, is this a safe place for me to say that I love this? <laughs> this is good stuff, all right? So I'm watching on my couch, okay? My heart is pumping. I'm thinking, there's no way out. There's no way out. The whole East Coast is going to be destroyed. And more importantly, Kurt's gonna die, right? (laughs) I was very worried and I've got sweaty palms at this point and my heart rate is getting up and I'm in my living room on my couch eating a bag of chips wearing stretchy pants, okay? Just, (laughs) Just to paint the picture, okay? And I'm, I'm building up and I'm building up and I'm watching the show. And then all of a sudden, like that, I stop. And I think, wait a second. This is season two. <laughs> and everybody else is watching season three right now. And I saw the preview and Kurt's in it. <laughs> Kurt wins. And I just calmly watch the rest of the show. Um, now, just not to leave you on the, on the cliff, okay? Weller uses a defibrillator to, on the terrorist to uh, torch the beacon inside of her, crisis averted, okay? That's gold, that's gold. I tell you about that dumb show to tell you this. We are only in season two, my friends. Season three is coming. We're only in season two. With all the hard, with all the suffering, with all the the brokenness around us, when you look at the news, when you look at your life, I want you to remember that, that this is only season two. This is a disturbing story we read today, right in the middle of our Bibles. And I just don't want to bait and switch you here. The Bible teaches that if you faithfully follow Jesus, you might not end up where you thought. You will very likely be rejected. And you'll be tempted to soften the blow. But I just want to encourage us today. Our hope is not in this world. Our ultimate hope is not here. It's not in sugarcoating our experiences on this planet as if they were all there is. Jesus calls his followers to come and die. That's figurative and it might be literal. And woe to us if we try to paint the faith in any other way. But I just want to leave it. There's hope. Season three is coming. And it's so much better than anything life has to offer. So it's a hard one. It's a hard one. But I want to leave us with the words of Jesus to close our time. Matthew chapter 10, 
verses 26 through 28. Maybe just listen to these, maybe read them, but just listen and think about what he's saying. So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God, help us to believe this stuff. Let's pray together. Father, what a, what a text. What a, what a difficult story. What a shock to our, our systems when we, when we see the story of John the Baptist, of what faithful followers sometimes are called to. And Father, I pray that, that we wouldn't turn our heads from the ugliness I pray we wouldn't try to pretty up the truth that is found here. The reason why we get baptized upon belief is because we identify with your death and your resurrection. And the only way to be resurrected is to first die. So God, I don't know what these men, these women, these students are going through. I don't know what hardships or sufferings or struggles, maybe even rejections they are facing. I don't know where their story has gotten and it's maybe nowhere near to where they had hoped or thought they would be. But I do pray that their encouragement would not be in a better tomorrow here, but ultimately a better eternity with you. No, we don't ever want to give up on this place. These lives that you have us to live is Christ. But that's not where our ultimate hope is. We want a realized eschatology. So help us in this. We need help with this, Father. I need help in this. So we're grateful for the life of John the Baptist and the reality of his story and what it paints for us. God, help us to believe this. We pray it in your son Jesus' name.